0: That is one of the most theologically rich passages in the scriptures. Let's begin a prayer together. Lord Jesus, you said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we know that uh, life can feel like a burden, but what you give us is not. Father, we ask that you teach us uh, to face what comes our way with the strength that you supply as we attach our yoke to you. That our jobs, our callings, our occupations, may may it be what we look for prosper, will be your, your word prospering in our hearts, first and foremost. And when we go through dark valleys, that you keep us from the pride of thinking we know the way out, and we will follow you on the way out. Teach us to share the yoke with you and allow you to do the heavy lifting. Teach us to follow your lead. We ask that all the stumbles and sins of yesterday will not be repeated today, and that we, we uh, continue to walk in you, and we ask that we teach us to find rest in you. We thank you for all those who went before us, our families and our friends and the historical figures, and like Paul, who paved the way for us to show us what it's like to follow the Son. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you, and we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, in spite of anything, in spite of it all, that we will we remain loyal to you regardless. To be honest, Lord, I... In, honest with my brothers and sisters here. I find it hard sometimes believing that your yoke is light and easy. It just uh, doesn't seem possible. And I'm thankful for the few times in life I've experienced that. Lord, I'm asking you and on behalf of all my friends and brothers and sisters here to help us to make this a way of life, of being attached to you. Teach us to rest in you Teach us to understand that there's nothing to prove, there's no need to impress, no obligations to take charge of, no need to manipulate my emotions or anyone else's. Father, teach us to be the perpetual receptor of your grace and mercy so that we can experience the lightness of your grace and so that we can show grace and mercy to others. So, Father, that is our prayer this morning as we look into your scriptures. We pray that your word make it in the way into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. It's good to see everyone here, and Dylan, I have to tell you, it's so good to see you in front. Of, and thank you for being here. And uh, you. see you walk in; it's like, oh, it just really touched my heart. It's good to see you, man. Like you, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Uh, I got brought a picture with me this morning as I turn this on uh, this is a picture of uh, the Great Pyramid in Cholula it's about five miles from where we used to live in Puebla and uh, it's not as high as the pyramids in, in, uh, in Egypt but by volume it's the largest pyramid in the world it's huge and uh, it was uh, built in, in honor of the, the local god and also the uh, Quetzalcoatl, and then there, there's the God of the Rain. It was built in, in, uh, in, in honor of her, to worship her. And you'll notice that there's a, a, um, a church on top of it. Most of us know the stories of the conquistadors of Spain who came over to the Americas in the Western Hemisphere, and, uh, and especially Hernán Cortez, And uh, Hernán Cortez got his way and worked his way into the indigenous peoples, in their, into their lives, Uh, with the help of his translator and probable lover malinche and uh, until eventually he ended up going to war with these indigenous tribes and conquering them thanks to the help of some uh, superior weapons horses and smallpox Uh, he was able to conquer the the people and uh, their motivation was probably more greed than anything else although they also had the blessing of the pope and the Pope said that, he would, uh, that it was okay to kill somebody than if, rather than let them live on in, in paganism and worshiping these false gods. And so you, they, they come in there and they built this. Uh, the, the pyramid was this, uh, this, this ritual place, this place of sacred uh, religion where they worship these gods. And frankly, they're all over that part of the country. Uh, Cholula is a small town. And uh, it's it's called the town of 365 churches, one church for every day. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, I have to say. Uh, And depending on which guide you get, we'll explain why that is. But the basic reason why there's so many churches in this town is every time there was a a sacred ritual spot for a god uh, of the Indians or the indigenous people, well, they would build a church on top of it, just as a symbol of conquering um, that's uh, that they had victory over the principalities and the powers of the day. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he talked about having victory over the principalities and powers. And I'm almost certain that's not what Jesus had in mind when he talked about having victory over principalities and powers. But Paul did talk about that. And in uh, just like the... The Olmecs, the Toltecs, the Aztecs, the the Tlapanecos, and all the other tribes there, they had this pantheon of gods for everything, for rain, for harvest, for love, for war, uh, just about everything you can imagine. Well, so did the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans. They also had gods for everything. And in that time, uh, humans weren't blamed for bad things. The real culprits were the gods. And uh, so if things were happening bad to you, it's because one of the gods had it out for you and uh, they wanted to punish you or they just wanted to mess with you or whatever. Uh, if you were going to war, you wanted to try to make sure you pleased the, guard, the god Mars. Or if you were in love, you might need some help from Hap- Aphrodite to help you with your, your love life. And if something was going wrong, it was because some, some demon, some god was just around the corner wanting to mess you up. And so you've got a population basically living in paranoia and uncertainty and fear not knowing what all this is all about. And Paul talks about this in the principalities and the powers. Now we look at that and we go, how primitive, how silly is that? You know, But in our world, we talk about forces too. We talk about things that we can't explain. And uh, we talk about the forces that keep us from doing things. And you'll hear politicians and billionaires who have the answer for everything. They will, they will make the decisions and they will solve all the problems. And when they fail, they don't take the blame for it. They'll take the credit if it goes well, but they won't take the blame for it if it doesn't go well. And they'll blame it on the forces. Well, it was the, you know, the natural disasters, it was the earthquake, it was the flood, it was the, it was the snowstorm in upper New York, or whatever it is. Or it, it was uh, because of the wars, or because of, of economic factors, economic policies, And so we have these forces that we can't see, and those are the things that mess us up, if it wasn't for that. And really, if it wasn't for that, we would have low gas prices, if it wasn't for the forces, you know? If it wasn't for the forces, we would, you know, the world can grow enough food to feed the entire planet, but there's political forces, there's economic forces that keep us from doing that. And sometimes they're associated with a certain person, and that person can leave or die or what else, but the force still stays it continues on. But we don't call them Mars or Aphrodite. We don't call them god names. We just call them these forces. So when Paul was talking about principalities and powers, when the Colossians were listening to this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And Paul is offering out another solution, another way of getting around it. When they wanted to ask the question, well, how does this work? How do the principalities work? And how does this victory look like? What does this look like? And how, do we, how does this help me follow Jesus? Well, they knew what they were talking about. And these are the questions that, that we have. And when you have these billionaires and, and, uh, and politicians who are saying that they can do it all, they can solve the problem, they're going to be here, and then they will solve your problems for you and all these kind of things. Basically, they're believing the same lie the serpent told Eve. You can be like a God. You can be God yourself. And that's the lie. That's the lie here. Now, we, um, we looked at the, the introduction to the book of Colossians the last couple of weeks where Paul, looked, where Paul was praying for them. And the first section, he is thankful. He's thankful for their reputation. He's thankful for uh, what the work of the word had done in their lives. He's thankful for that. And then the second half of that prayer are the petitions of what he longs for these Colossians is what he wants for them. This is a young church, maybe less than 20 people, in a fairly small town, kind of uh, down Turkey a ways and to the left a little bit. That's where this town is. It's just kind of a smaller town. And that's what he's writing, he has this prayer. But then he goes in, we turn the page here after this prayer, and we find something really, truly remarkable in the book of Colossians. We find a poem, a poem that, that is, that is just, just impactful and impacts the, 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 the hearers emotionally. So let's read it quickly, and uh, we're going to talk about the poem because I believe it's really important. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. There's a couple of verses that introduce this, this poem to you. And then he tells us, he goes into this poem about, about Jesus Christ. And... If you're looking at your English translation, you're going, well, it doesn't really look like a poem to me. And that is the unfortunate thing. that When we see it in English, it doesn't feel like a poem, it doesn't look like a poem. But it's important to see it as a poem because it's, you can communicate so much more with poetry than you can just prose. And we have this idea that... that um, Our theology was kind of put down in all these dogmas. We talk about the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. But really, our Christology, our theology actually became poetry because you can communicate so much more with poetry. You can get to the gut reaction with poetry. And if you read it in Greek, it is really, truly a poem. And you have this first section. We're going to call it A1. And the reason I'm saying this is because I think how Paul says things is just as important as what he says and we know that true we know that also in our own in our own culture that for example i take uh, take the one well, the classic song from paul simon the boxer he can tell you what happened to his life when he went when he arrived in new york and about how he went through there but do you ever listen to the song and the words of the song the boxer it just has a gut feeling for it and you feel with him and you understand it rather than just telling us in sequence but in, in our western minds We like those sequences. We like the logical mechanics. But with poetry, you can memorize it, you can hear it, and you understand the emotions. Well, this is what Paul is getting at. So we have that first section, A1, and then it, it parallels with this last section. So you have in the first section, he talks about the firstborn over all creation. The second section, he talks about the firstborn among the dead. In the first section, he talks about all things in heaven and earth. And the second thing he talks about reconciling all things in earth and heaven. In the first section, he talks about all things visible, principalities and powers, and he talks about reconciling these principalities and powers in the second half. So you have these two two sides going at the same time. One is saying one thing, another is saying something like it, but different. And in the middle, you have this kind of connection that connects the two. And what he's doing, he's telling us about creation, and then he's telling us about new creation. He's talking about the creator and he's also talking about the redeemer. And you see this, and you cannot unfortunately see it in the English, but you can see it and hear it in the Greek. Because body and church and head, those are all four little syllables, but in the Greek they're, they're, they're much, much fuller. So I'm going to read it to you in Greek and see if you can see the rhythm here. This is 17 in the first part of 18. Kai altas estan propanton in alto altos e to You hear the rhythm, it's just you, that's, what it, that's what you're hearing. And you hear the, the listeners were listening to that and they could hear it and understand it and memorize it and see it. And I think it's important that we see this because we're not going to understand this poem unless we see it as a poem. We're not going to understand it because we like A, B, C, D, Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2. We like that, but that's not how Paul's communicating here. He's telling us this poem, and it's this, this, this amazing, amazing poem. And it starts off with Christ and creation. And then he ends up with Christ and the new creation. And really, it's kind of a poem that reflects the Jewish poems of the Psalms. The Psalms were all full. You just Lots of Psalms were telling you that... This God who is the creator is also God the redeemer. And it's more than just that God is able to multitask. It's putting these two things together. That God is the creator. This creation is good and he is also the redeemer. That this God of Genesis that created the heavens and the earth is also the God of Exodus who hears his people cry and is able to deliver them. They are the same one. They are the same God. These God... That creation and redemption work together. Now, there was a group back in this day, and really it kind of, it, it, you can see it in today's world as well, called the Gnostics, and that means to know things. And what they said was that all the material stuff, that was all bad. And maybe it was created by God, but it was created by a lesser God. And we want a, a better God who's going to do things, and he's the God of the Spirit. So the God of the material is bad, the God of the spirit is good, material is bad, spirit good, and so they would say to transcend that, to have connection with the cosmic God, you had to punish your body. You had to do all these kind of things to kind of beat down the body so that your spirit would transcend the body. The other group said, well, your body didn't matter, so go ahead and indulge it. Do with whatever you want. I can imagine which group was more popular, but... um, That's the way they thought. And Paul is saying, no, the two go together. The same God that created the world is the same God that rescues us. This is majestic Savior monotheism. This is the reflection of Isaiah 40 to 55, that this sovereign, powerful God is also the shepherd who feeds his sheep. They're the same person, the same thing. This is not just... Uh, the God that that where universe and God are the same thing. This is God who has a is a person who deals with us in creation, who saves us within creation, that He does things, He changes things. He's not just the universe as it is. He is the creator of the universe. And it also echoes the poems of that day of the Greeks, who would have these poems of adulation and, and praise and stuff of the Caesar. And tell you all of his virtues and all the things that he's done in the world. And what, how, he's, how he saved this city. And Paul is saying, yeah, Jesus is even above that. He's even above the Caesar. No wonder he was in prison. He is over that. He is higher than Caesar. And what he has made, he is going to remake. This is the beginning of Christian theology. And I find this incredibly important that, it began, that Christian theology begins as a song, begins as a poem, begins as worship and praise and adulation. That this is where theology comes out of. It wasn't until like the fourth century that we started putting it down in, in, in documents. It all came from here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I got carried away. It all comes from here. It all comes from down here in the heart, in the gut. This is where it comes. And he says he is the firstborn of creation. What that means is that he is prior to creation. He's not talking about cre- chronology here. He's talking about status. The firstborn of the status. He is first above creation. In the same way that Solomon was, talking about the, was spoken of as the firstborn of David. Chronologically, he was not the firstborn of David. But according to his status as king, he was the firstborn. That's the idea here. That he is above above creation that he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God if we want to know what God looks like we look at Jesus that's the first place we go don't try to find a verse that maybe will fit your preconceived idea you go to Jesus first that's where you see God he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God and he is the creator of all things This is just echoing what John said in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. He is the creator of all things. And I love Paul's use of the prepositions here. It was in Him, through Him, and for Him. In other words, this Jesus, He is the the, the first cause, the primary cause of everything. He is the instrumental cause that keeps it going, and he's the final cause because of his pleasure, his love. He did this out of love. All of, rea- all of reality, in other words, is in Jesus Christ. He is the sphere of reality. And so we have this good creator of God and the good creation. And we have two, pe- two groups of people here that sometimes look at the world and they say, yeah, the world is great, it's good. few glitches, but basically it's all great. And then you have people on the other side who say, oh, I look around the world, it's nothing but trash, it's horrible, it's nothing. It, it's just blow the whole thing up. Well, Paul brings those two together. And this is a battle that the church has been fighting forever. He brings the battle. Yes, it doesn't mean that nothing has gone wrong, but it also means that the creation was good god would not create something and just destroy it he will redeem it he will reconcile it not destroy it he and and i love this thing in this middle section he starts off with the good creation that he holds it all together he holds it together i don't know what i'm not up on all the scientific theories these days but when i was in school in high school i remember my science teacher said that atoms you know Have the 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 nucleus of the neutrons and the protons all positive charge, and then electrons negative charge around it. Now they've got quarks and all kinds of things, and we were saying he said, how do these atoms held together? And he said, well, by atomic glue. I don't know if that's changed or not. I don't know. I don't know if there's another theory, but that's just what they called it because they didn't anything else to call it. It's just atomic glue that holds the atoms together. And I'm going, no, I know who holds the atoms together. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus who holds things together. And I almost end my prayers daily with this phrase, Father, Lord, may the Lord that holds the universe together, may the grace that holds the universe together hold me together today. And I pray that for you guys too. May the grace that holds the universe together hold you together as you get through the day. And then he goes on and he says, and it's the body of the church. And this is what's so incredible. He now places the church in the middle of the picture. This story is about Jesus, the poem is about Jesus, but like all the New Testament, it's also about us. And we are now his representatives, and so he is making this transition from God of the creation to now God the Redeemer, the new creation. And the church is in the center of this picture. He puts it in the middle. His story is now our story. One of my favorite stories about D.L. Moody, back in 1893, there was this parliament of religions in Chicago, and they were bringing all these people from all these representatives from all these different religions all around the world together in Chicago. And the idea was they were going to discuss and bring out and look at the best and, uh, principles of all these religions. And they kind of had this, this vision of putting together this new religion that would be the best of all of them. And D.L. Moody thought he was going to have a campaign during this time of the Parliament of Religions. So he rented theaters, he rented a circus tent when, there weren't any, when they were not showing any shows, and churches. And all of his friends said, yeah, you need to get up there and really condemn this Parliament of Religions. You need to point it out and talk about it and tell them how wrong this is, that this is demonic. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. My desire is to communicate Jesus in such a way so that no man could resist him. To make him so attractive that no one can resist him. And I love that. I think that's what Paul is calling us to do in this paragraph with him as the church, that we are to reflect him in such a way that no one can resist him. That the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. And I think that's where we need to be as a church in our culture today. To present him so that no one can resist him. He comes at the end of the the poem and we we have his purpose and objectives. That all things are being really held together, and he's going to remake it, recreate it. And he says the fullness of the God is present in him. We cannot extract Jesus from the Trinity. What he is saying is that Jesus is the personal, historical statement of the transcendent cosmic God, he is the historical, personal statement of the God that we can't see. And we often have this, this template in our head of what that looks like, of what God, the incarnation looks like. How does God become man and all this? And we kind of have some, some ideas and theories in our head. But it doesn't make any difference unless it gets you here, unless you experience it. Because if you don't, it's just mouths, it's just dogma, it's just cliches that you're willing to say. We have to experience it. If we don't help people experience it, then we're just going to be creating a lot of ex-believers. Then we are believers. How do we experience it? Let me give you two ways. One is be open to awe and wonder. Be open to awe and wonder. The mystery. And those moments happen. And you may brush them off. But I'm gonna ask you to take those moments and at least stay with it with 15 seconds. Just 15 seconds, stay with it. And it may be, sometimes you know, sometimes it happens to me with music here when, when the worship team is leading music and I just have these moments of awe and wonder, of mystery and I can't understand it. Sometimes it happens to me lately, I was just laying in bed and just being overwhelmed with gratitude that I am warm. And outside, it's really cold for this Texas boy. (laughs) And you just become overwhelmed with gratitude. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's seeing kindness in people. Whatever it is, hold on to it for that mystery for at least 15 seconds so it gets into your head. Be open to the mystery. Fundamentalists have a hard time with mystery. Fundamentalists like things black and white, and they like things they can control. Well, you can't control a mystery, and you can't control God, and he may break in at the most weirdest times, but let it, stay with it for just a few seconds, and you'll keep going back to it. The other way, I'm sorry to say, is suffering. I don't believe God is causing suffering. He doesn't do that. He's good. But nothing breaks through that I'm in control feeling more than suffering, unfortunately. That's where we kind of say, yeah, I everything kind of breaks down. Uh, I have these logic and paradigms in my head. I have the dogma in my head. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who was born of the Virgin Mary, you know, except for, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I can say all those things, but somehow, when it comes to the point where I say, I can't make it through the day. This makes no sense to me. Why is this happening? That's when we are open to the mystery. That's when we lose control. I saw a commercial just this week, first time I'd ever seen this commercial, from Kaiser Permanente. And uh, it was actually a great commercial where they had these people come in there and they said, I didn't choose to be lactose intolerant. I didn't choose to get cancer. I didn't choose to have a heart attack. I didn't choose to be gluten intolerant or have diabetes. And that point was, then you can choose your doctor. That's what their point was. But I was listening to it going, they hit it. They hit it on the head. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to lose a baby, but it happened. I can choose my savior. I can choose my God. And that's the big difference. That's how we can get experience the mystery of God in his fullness being manifested in Jesus Christ. I can choose him. I didn't choose this. Sue did not choose to break her leg, but we can choose the Savior. We can choose him. And he says he is going to reconcile everything to himself. All those principalities and powers, he's not going to conquer them. He's not going to destroy them. He reconciles them. That means he created principalities and power. But we all know about the fall. And yes, it's unleashed disasters on our planet, on our, peer, our individuals. But God is going to reconcile them and bring them together. And in all sinners, he says, on the cross, the blood of the cross. That is the visible symbol of what God is doing all the time. What is going on inside of God all the time, we see it in the cross. This ongoing love and sacrifice and giving is going on all the time and we see it in the symbol of the cross. Who would opt out of this kind of love? Who would opt out of this if this is what God is doing all the time? That He is in solidarity with our suffering. That He is not distant from what we're feeling. That this reconciliation that he's talking about does not take place in the stratosphere somewhere. It takes place in real life. In real life. We live it out. It's not just in theory. It's not just some legal transaction that yeah, we're good to go. It is something that is lived out. That he is showing mercy on us. And here's the thing here's the thing with all this that God cannot not see his son in us. He is the body, we, he, we are the body, he is the head of the body, he is our brother. He cannot not see his son in us. We are bone of his bone, we are flesh of his flesh, and that's what he sees when we are standing under the waterfall of mercy, it allows us to show mercy to others. That's how it works. The cross shows the love of the creator God, that he will do what is needed to reconcile all things to himself. He will do whatever he's needed, and the whole point of this is that Jesus, in Jesus you have it all. In Jesus you have it all that's where you find it in jesus you have it all from start to finish what i love about this is this is just six verses and six times he repeats all the word all 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 that means this goes further than our any empire any nation any culture any language any ethnicity it covers it all And would we want a God any smaller than that? No. It has to be a God that transcends it all. In Jesus, you have it all. And we can think, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, it all goes back to Genesis. When the culmination of the creation was to create human beings to be his image and govern the world as he would do it. And then he finished and rested. If you've read through the book of John, you know that Pilate has Jesus whipped, scourged and and beaten and then he pulls him out in in front of the crowd and he goes, behold the man. And if you were listening to John, like a first reader, and rather than reading it, like a first person, like you're hearing internet read, which is how these things were done. You, most people didn't read, they listened. And if you were listening to John carefully, you would know that John is repeating Genesis. This is the man. This is the one who did what was supposed to do. This is the true human being right here. God fully in him the one who sacrifices it all to love us. And we get to sit under the waterfall of mercy forever. We get to choose him, in him the fullness dwells. And because of that, the fullness not only dwells with us, it also dwells in us. In Jesus, we have it all. He reflects the living creator, who is also the loving redeemer, the loving rescuer. And we get to celebrate that this morning with communion, where we will symbolically take Jesus into ourselves, where he will dwell not just among us, not just in our midst, but in us. And we will represent that and do that this morning with the symbols of communion.